welcome to the inaugural episode of the Embrace ASD podcast. I'm your host, Matt, and in this episode, I speak with Reese Finley, comedian, comic book writer, comic book illustrator, and storyteller. So without further delay, here's the episode. All right, so this is your host, Matt, and we have Craig, oh, Craig, uh, it's our bot. We have Reese Finley here, Finlay, because he's fancy and he insists uh, that we call him that. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm a lowly American and he needs to put me in my place. And I, I appreciate it and I encourage it. Um, and so to begin, Reese, uh, tell us about how you were diagnosed and when. Not too long ago, actually. I was a late diagnosed, so I was 25 turning 26. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, it all came through a bit of a, a messy situation. There was a bit of a, you know, let's keep it soft for the audience. There was a mental health crisis that saw me hospitalized and you know, it was during those times the GP was like, have you ever considered you might be autistic? And the referral was made um, in the UK. It was a one-year wait at the time, um, which sounds like a lot. But nowadays, it's actually three years. And then that's, so. that's incredible, a three-year wait for a diagnosis. I mean, that's so much time in life. Imagine if this were a child or an adolescent. It's a lot of development to go without any yeah, absolutely. structured help. I mean, even just a one-year, you know, I, I was a one year left alone to kind of work it out for yourself. So I did a lot of research into the condition and, you know, gave it a good Google on Wikipedia and stuff. I was like, okay, yeah, I definitely fit this criteria and kind Mm. of came to terms with it long before the diagnosis even happened. But then when the diagnosis did happen, it still struck me and hit quite hard once I was handed that slip of paper. And that was a very confusing time. And it was trying to work out why things have changed, why I can't just go back to being the person I was. And it was a lot of, a lot of emotions and lifestyle choices are out to work for, I think. And, you know, then on top of that, there was no post post diagnosis support at the time, at least in my area of England. So, you know, you're left alone for a year to work it out. You give them a diagnosis and then you're kind of sent on your way to work out again. And that's when I started to work out the seeds were planted for doing my own book. Um, I don't know. If you walk into a, a high street bookshop in the UK, there is an autism shelf, but 90% of that is for children or parents of children. And then there's not too much for the adults. I know there's a, you know, I later discovered that there's a huge, you know, industry behind adult autism, you know, both online and then in publishing as well. There's so many memoirs and stuff, which is brilliant. But at the time, I found that quite hard to access on an entry level. I think you kind of have to be quite deep into the, for want of a better word, autism, autism culture to really see that and soak it up. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, you know what, I'll do my own. You know, I, I've always done comics. Well, for the last five years, I've done comics and could not draw when I first started comics. I used to work for a payday loan company, go to door to door collecting loan repayments, which is a nasty, ugly, horrible job to be doing. And that wore yeah. me down. That was, it just wore me down so much, you know, because of the, the moral implications of that. You could make as much money as you want, and that that doesn't justify it. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, I want to touch on that because um, uh, what we find is a lot of autistic people have this natural inclination to do no harm and um, yeah, or question the moral the morality of a situation they're in or a situation just want to ask group think doesn't seem to affect us quite as much, which I mean makes sense given social. This is a huge thing because everyone around me during that time, you know, they worked there or was a part of that system. 
and they thought it was the best thing ever. You know, it's easy money. You could make thousands of pounds a week some weeks, which is insane. But then there's just this kind of thing building up inside me. Like, hold on, this is so, so wrong. You know, I was, you'd go out there and you'd see families breaking up over money. And it was just horrible to know that you had a hand in that. You could easily assure yourself and say, no, it's not your fault. It's their fault for being in that situation and stuff. But yeah, I, I disagree with that. I was still a cog in that machine and I wanted out. And it got to, it was January 1st, 2015, you know, time of reflection and New Year's resolution and stuff. And I went, you know what? I'm done. And I, I rang him up and said that, <laughs> handed everything back in and just turned my back on it. And I was, I was really into comics and stuff at the time. I was reading a lot of Hellblazer, which is still one of my favorites. And I was Wait, like, you said Hellblazer? You know yeah, uh, John Constantine. Oh, yes, yeah. fantastic. That is my favorite series. And, you know, there's some great individual issues there, you know, where they do like a whole horror story or something kind of weird and trippy within that 30 pages. So I was like, okay, you know what? I could probably do that. I can't draw that well. I did art school, but it wasn't proper in any, in any sense. <laughs> so, you know, I just kind of did it. I sold off all my video game collection. I had tons of vintage consoles and stuff, sold them all off to fund the print costs and a table at a comic con. And the rest was history. It just slowly grew from there. I learned how to draw while in that. And three years later, I'd finally kind of made a bit of a name for myself. I had a really successful graphic novel called the blue flame, which was my first autobiography. It was all about the loan company and the morality of that and how it kind of got messy at the time, you know, relationships and the ethics of that. And it, but it kind of merged the fictional stuff I'd done before with the reality. So it kind of has this weird, great tone. And I, it's weird looking back on it because there's no mention of autism or, you know, even suspected autism in there. Cause that didn't come in till much later in the game, but it's, yeah. it still stands as a really good story. And from there, you know, cause I advanced so much from my art skills and stuff. I started getting invites from tops, the trading cards company to do official artwork for star Wars. And Star Wars has been my special interest since I was a kid. I mean, oh, yes. my dad, my dad used to work. Um, not particularly. I don't. I feel it's hard to pin down my love for Star Wars because I do acknowledge that quite a lot of it is pretty bad. <laughs> but I don't know. It's yeah, just, it's a comfort food, I guess, in terms of you know. I, I grew up with it. My dad was Navy technician. He used to bring home this huge projector, and I remember watching Return of a Jedi, wearing out those videotapes, and then fast forward to being in high school i was getting told off by my art teacher for drawing star wars characters in my notebooks so then all these years later to be being paid and making an actual living and you know living the dream of doing official artwork for the last few star wars movies it's incredible to see that kind of narrative all come together so yeah i mean artwork and problem, comics right? and, success yes. is the greatest revenge yeah there was no malice in revenge but it's you know turning that special interest into a career a career to an extent and then the doors that opens and being able to have that confidence in my own artwork, which really helped when I was starting to think about, you know, I had a really hard time coming to terms with the autism diagnosis and to get me through, mm. I was making funny little jokes and stuff. So my, it, <laughs> the story of how this book happened is less noble than the actual end product. I did it to impress, <laughs> I did it to impress a girl. <laughs> all all nice. stories. All stories begin with my penis. She had all these yeah. dinosaur. She had these dinosaur tattoos all up her arm, and I was like, w hey, "What a segue! <laughs> penis to dinosaurs." <laughs> what? I just needed to uh, put a pin in that real quick. <laughs> That's the the episode title. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, to impress her, I had this 
had this joke. It's, you know, oh, being autistic means I'm just like you, except I can name all the dinosaurs, which isn't yes. true. I can't actually name them all. But... Yeah, yeah. Believe in your book, you said you can name three, actually. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Gareth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, that was the first thing I ever drew was that picture that's in the book of me kind of draped across like Jeff Goldblum with some dinosaurs behind me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty funny. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. So it started off as funny little comics. And then I've always wanted to be funny. I'm My other special interest is comedy and comedians and that whole scene. And it was, oh, okay, I could make, I could break some new ground here by being funny with a serious topic. But then you quickly begin to realize you can't be exclusively funny about it all. You have to have serious caveats and explanations. So the book just started growing and growing and growing into this huge merge of both comic book and novel to kind of hit on all these details because i think if you were to do it just comics you could make some good points you could find some great things for people to relate to but if you really want to convey a message you do need the detail of the written word so it, it's become this really interesting hybrid but it's not never been seen before but it's still quite a rare sight and that yeah, I mean, a lot of interest and it was so this is like my 11th comic book and third graphic novel but this is the first and only time I've ever pitched to a proper publisher. And they were super on board with it. They were, they thought it was great. You know, I had a great argument about how there's a huge gap in the market for it. And if we did do this, it would be successful. But then one concern was I didn't have much of an online presence. I had about a thousand mm-hmm. followers that I'd accrued over a few years. And in the media world, that's nothing. They want you to have that big audience and they want you to have the presence. So I had to get more involved with authors and Twitter, which was... Uh, <laughs> It was interesting, but you know, it's for all its faults and stuff. It was great to finally find a tribe and an audience. But by the time you found that audience, you know, I'd kind of got disenfranchised by the idea of publishing it through traditional channels. Why couldn't I just do a Kickstarter like I normally do and just sell it directly to them? For one, it's quicker because you know, if if I did stay with that publisher, as great as they were, the editor was amazing. You know, if if that was the trajectory I stayed on, the book wouldn't be out yet. It would be out maybe summer if I was lucky, depending on what happened <laughs> in the world. Um, so I kind of dodged a bullet by putting it directly out there. And the Kickstarter was, in, you know, I was expecting, and we needed about two grand to just print a few hundred copies and send it to the people. And it did nearly 250% of its original goal. It, it really wow. ran away with itself. And that was incredible for me coming from a small press self-publishing background where you could sell, you know, you'd probably get about 100 printed and you'd sell about half of them in a year going to various conventions and stuff. But with this book, I haven't done a Comic Con yet. The book launch was meant to be last Friday, but it was delayed for obvious reasons. But despite not having done any events, it's already sold more than every single thing I've ever done before combined. And it's so... That's incredible. It's bizarre to come to terms with (laughs) that. And, you know it's interesting it's something i wrote in the live show which is now infinitely delayed you know i feel kind of weird about making money off autism i know it's my autism it's my life but i feel weird autism should never be an industry so if i am going to make profit on this which hopefully i will do one day i need to make sure it's worthy yeah i'm also putting back what i'm taking and you know hopefully i can it's hard to gauge one's contributions but luckily the book and you know that gets my name out there and then you start getting invites to things and 
I've been, there's an organization in the UK called Act for Autism. They make a lot of video content and they're currently working with the government now to make an online training portal for anyone who works for council. And hopefully that'll start getting rolled out to anyone who works anywhere. But, you know, if you get a job somewhere, a part of your training when you start there is to have awareness of neurodiversity and that other people might have neurological conditions and need certain allowances and accommodations. And that's incredible for me because I came from a background where I can't talk too much about it because there's an NDA because court stuff. But oh, yeah. I came from some really bad workplace environments, which arguably caused this. Well, not caused the autism, but caused the breakdown and stuff. And so my, my yeah, state... The vaccines in, caused the autism, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I got that when I, was, <laughs> I got my vaccine when I was young. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're joking, oh, by yeah. the way, everybody. That, that oh, is yeah, false. I mean, so if you look put at it out there. If you look at any fact, you'll see that it's absolute nonsense. The vaccines one's weird. Obviously, it all comes from Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Yep, fellow um, Brit. Yeah, and apparently he's sleeping with Claudia Schiffer, which is <laughs> so bizarre. I mean, maybe <laughs> <Right>? if I, <laughs> yeah, if I become like a disgraced doctor, maybe I could get a super bold girlfriend. So I'm, I'm considering it. I'm considering just going absolutely <laughs> batshit. Hell yeah! Botch a couple yeah. surgeries, put out some quack science. I mean, I've been thinking about him a lot recently. Not about the Claudia Schiffer thing. I just found that out. <laughs> Like, uh, fantasizing about Wakefield should be the title. It's food for thought. I mean, the situation we're in now, do you think it would have, we would have been more prepared for it if there was less of a stigma towards vaccines, which all stemmed from him? Yeah, and I mean, the greater history of autism, I actually just wrote an article about this for Embrace, um, LinkedIn Arends, The Banality of Evil, as a sort of um, conceptual operator to look at the history of autism from, where it starts out from wanting to help a community and, you know, really bad things were done in the name of helping people, like institutionalization and uh, quack That's theories. The other thing I've been thinking about autism. a lot, you know, these people who are perceived villains in, you know, the autism world, you know, the William Shatner's, <laughs> yeah. one of the better, so, you know, they don't think they're the bad guys. They genuinely yeah. think that they're doing the right thing. And this is... That's where it gets complicated. I mean, historically, I don't think any villain knows they're the bad guy because that's not how humanity works, you know? Yeah, like, you know, when I was working in a loan company, you'd think of things to convince yourself that you're actually the good guy. And that's yeah, the situation think, a lot of well, people are in. Yeah, you're doing a service for the nation. You're collecting debt. You know, it, it's natural to find a way to ease the psyche into that and say, yeah. well, look, I'm doing us a service. Why are you pointing fingers at me? I'm not the one who's in debt. You know, you'll go, oh, if I wasn't doing it, someone else would be doing it. And that's not the point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that one's always such a, a weak argument too. Is, you know, it's like, well... It goes back to what we were saying before we were recording. I mean, you know, look at what's going on in the world right now. I mean, yep. historically, hopefully this will all blow over and this will be a historical artifact of a podcast. But, you know, people are, are ignoring the warnings. Every individual thinks they're the exception. Yep. But then if you look at it, oh, mm -hmm. no, you're actually a huge, you're a huge group now. And this, the same goes, you know, the online cultures, the, the aggressive pylons we see as well, especially in like yes. the disabled autism, Twitter and some of the anger and vitriol, you know, most people think they're just one person doing it. And then you zoom out and there's like 20 people all piling on someone and that becomes this big, ugly mess. And it's no one thinks they're in the wrong. Everyone thinks they're in the right. And then the voices just shout louder and louder and there's no communication or compromise or... It's an interesting one. Not that I'm defending any perceived villains. Yeah. I mean, there's a quote in the book I would like to read that you wrote that I thought um, 
ties in perfectly and is really true. And the quote reads, I feel that neurodiversity and the acceptance it promotes is incredibly important, and I can't let my own bias and impulsive urge to sharpen my pitchfork ruin my belief in such an important step forward for autistic people. And uh, I think wow. it goes both ways, where we need we need a lot of the neurodiversity folks um, as you know, ignorant as some of the things NT say and can do is they're still people and we have to work with them rather than against them. You know, we can't make this a, a war. Well, this is the thing. If you're, if you have a disagreement with someone, the only true solution is communication. But the problem with social media, and this isn't just limited towards some Twitter, this branches out to everything. Yeah. The aggression, you're pinning, you're pinning someone up against the wall because you disagree with them. But if you're pinned up against the wall with someone shouting in your face, you're not going to change your mind. You're just going to say, hey, this guy's an asshole. And that's, the, that's my huge fear regarding neurodiversity. And in its online interpretation, it's, it's, it becomes this closed-off group that's perceived from the outsider as hostile. And a lot of the neurotypical bashing or you know, unbridled aggression towards parents is feeding into that. And I know if I say that, someone will go, but parents are bad, but neurotypicals are bad. Yeah, you're right. Some of them are. But if you then use sweeping generalizations to sum up the whole group, exactly the same for autism or neurodiversity. If you, you know, as a group, we don't like sweeping generalizations. You know, we know that we're all completely yeah. individual. We're all affected completely differently. So we don't like it when people assume we're all We're, we're not all Rain Man. I, uh, yeah, I can't count right. toothpicks to save my life. <laughs> I had that written into the oh, live show. <laughs> I was going to spend five minutes on stage failing to count toothpicks on the floor. <laughs> And <laughs> there you go. That's a funny, that's a, you know, maybe that's a good idea of how to challenge a stereotype is to mock it and make jokes. And maybe, I don't know, it's weird. You know, I'm not the first autistic person trying to be a comedian and I definitely won't be the last, but it's really weird to kind of do the math of it and work out how much you can do without it getting offensive. Yeah. And how to balance um, it. And in Jim Jeffries. I'm sorry. Uh, and Jim Jeffries' latest special, actually, he uh, he opens up about his autism diagnosis. Really? I'm going to get on that straight away. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he's obviously a, a pretty well-known comedian, so uh, it will hopefully do a lot for us. It all really depends on how he presents it. I mean, personally, I thought the bit he brought it up in was pretty funny. Uh, please, people, take yeah. it with a grain of salt. He is a comedian. He's embellishing things on purpose. It's his context, context is vital with all of this sort of thing. And if you Google yeah. autism stand up, which I did, that's a hell of a journey. And you can you could split it into two piles <laughs> of good autism comedy and bad autism comedy. And what I've noticed is with the bad stuff, it's usually at the expense of someone else. So you know, it'll be a stand up comedian talking about their child, or oh, you yeah. know. You know, the famous one is the Ricky Gervais, and he literally does the Rain Man stereotype and doesn't right. challenge it in any way, so it doesn't go anywhere as comedy. Comedy is a vital tool for social commentary or ushering in change or making people think. You know, it doesn't always have to be. It could just be something kind of daft and funny, but you can start to break down myths and stereotypes by challenging them. So um, try, try to think of a good example. In the book, there's, um, there's a little strip about dating and, you know, I'm, I'm on a date with someone. She's like, oh, you've, you've been quite withdrawn and I don't really know anything about you. And I open up my shirt and all this black and evil spews out about, you know, me, you know, if you simplify the joke is me working out when's a good time to come out as autistic, for want of a better word. 
and that's you know okay it's funny on the page because oh look i've just scared this girl away by being oversharing but then if you tear away the the initial joke oh okay it is actually difficult to tell someone about autism or communicate that in a way that finds the balance and you know it's stuff like that that can actually break down stereotypes you know same for the live show i would have done a rain man bit i would have done some anti-vax stuff some bleach stuff i take a pop at autism speaks oh my god (laughs) it's all handled so delicately that it you know while we're are we're laughing we're laughing with autism and we're we're laughing at the myths we're going ha 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 look how stupid the anti-vax stuff is and look how stupid bleach enemas are or (laughs) fecal transplants whatever they suggest it's though uh fecal transplants are good for other reasons it won't do much for autism it may do a lot for your uh stomach biome and gut biome but uh do that with caution people don't don't just literally don't just put you know feces in yourself without a doctor's help it's not recommended it's also pretty disgusting so it's a bizarre one to then apply to the autism framework saying but we you know scientifically we don't actually know that much about so to try and push cures and treatments without actually knowing why or how or when (laughs) it's it's dangerous in in speaking um, on dating, this is a really big uh, a really big uh, what's it called stereotype about autistics is that uh, we're introverted necessarily as a result of autism and yeah we're I mean I'm awkward and it's like I'm extroverted and I go on a, a lot of dates and um, I mean until I, I tell people well, they don't normally assume I'm on the spectrum yeah it's so bizarre I mean. Historically, especially in my teenage years, I was the Russell Brand of, of autism. I, oh boy, I, I, uh, I've lost I've lost count of how many partners I've had, and that's bad. But it's also you know it's also a testament to how that myth that we can't date or whatever is a complete myth. Yeah, I mean, I've known a lot of female Aspies, and uh, they clearly had no issues in that realm. I mean, they were so it's essentially a non-argument. Same with the empathy thing. You know, every human being has varying levels of empathy. So to then say autistic people don't have empathy, that actually makes me very sad. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's so ironic because uh, the literature actually demonstrates that we have higher levels of effective empathy, and it's actually a yeah, result we we feel really intensely a lot of the time. That's the counter argument that's often made to it. But then there's also there's a lot of people in the middle ground, and then there's also the whole discussion around Alexa people feeling thing, empathy yeah. just just because they don't express it in a way that aligns with your interpretation yeah it's a non-argument that simon Car- uh, simon baron cohen needs to sell books so we let him have that as a treat <laughs> <laughs> yeah and his uh I, I don't know has he abandoned the what is it the not radical male brain extreme male brain theory yeah. i think, I think um, he's dropped that right i think he still tries he, play, he tries to play the facts that have come later into it same with the empathy oh. thing Oh boy. So it's, you know, I think I think I tweeted it in once, but it's not too late to change your mind. And I think people would respect people more. Because that was the other thing. When I, I've read so many. I, my, I've got a huge bookshelf now of autism books dating way back to the 70s. And you can see how much things have changed, but how much people still try to hang on to despite them being disproved. And that's, yeah. that doesn't help. The and that's just a bad trait in science. And I get it. I mean, these are the researchers' babies, so to speak. And... They have to abandon an idea they they help create and, and there's glory with to kill, that to kill their darlings and yeah that, that's where the problem lies and you know you can be on modern courses and you still see things like that sneak in 
Um, the main one in Coventry, luckily, they're incredibly up to date and all the information is very modern and ties in with the neurodiversity framework and is extremely positive and constructive in that way. But then every now and then I'll end up on a course and they'll they'll say some really weird things. I was on one that was described as an introduction to autism. And on one of the slides, I think I have it around here somewhere, but it, it says that autism can cause gender dysphoria. And that terrified me to see it in an introduction to autism thing. I mean, there's we've got a lot of LGBTQ brethren amongst us, quite a high number actually. But I don't think yes. you could say that autism causes it. I mean, yeah, it to me like, that it seems like a misnomer. There's a lot that autism has kind of been the scapegoat for. I mean, we're also learning how alexithymia affects people and empathy and empathy relation and. A lot of researchers are now saying, well, perhaps the deficits or atypical empathy we're seeing, some of it will be autism, but a lot of it seems to be coming from alexithymia. This inability to relate is a result of this alexithymic reaction. And then if, you, and if you then zoom in and look at it on an individual level, everyone's had different upbringings, different surroundings, different environments, and all yeah. that's going to factor into people's emotions or you know the way their life develops as, you know, who they are as a person. There's so many factors at play to pin it all on autism is yeah, alarming. It, it seems, yeah, it's like we're, the, the issue with the pathology model is exactly that, is it, it puts a microscope on the negative traits, largely ignores what would be considered, you know, very positive traits like rote memorization being quite ridiculous for a lot of us Aspies, you know, we remember things almost encyclopedically. Some of us actually are pretty much walking encyclopedias. And uh, that's where other, that, that's where the other topic comes in. Is it a disability or is it a superpower? And, you know, especially online, you know, so, like, social media is it's built on extremes. Everyone has very hardline views. Yeah. And there's, there's the two walls. I think I'll describe it in the book as, you know, there's social necessities. You've got to have those two walls so we can live between it. You know, there's yeah. people, they, they will not have anything negative said about their autism you know it's their superpower it's the best thing they could ever have they're the master race and then there's other people on the <laughs> other side who you know it's a condemnation it's the worst thing that could ever happen to someone we're, we're all miserable and you know i think they call themselves the autistic dark web which is <laughs> a oh terrible, boy, yeah a terrible thing to associate yeah. yourself with anyway <laughs> yeah i mean you're you're in either in league with uh you know, weapons merchants and traffickers, or on the other side, it has connotations with the intellectual dark web. And I don't know about you guys, but Ben Shapiro is not who I want to be uh, associated with. Yeah, I think I, I, I mentioned him before we came on. I was watching a clip of him on YouTube yeah. and he kept purposefully misgendering Caitlyn Jenner. But every time he said it, he'd get it right the first time. He'd say she. So instinctively, he's in the right, but he has to consciously correct himself to be an arsehole. <laughs> And that's that's and really that. funny and also kind of sad at the same time. It's like, well, it's I mean, that's, you know, that's his brand and he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. Whereas if you to put it down to his instinctive, you know, as a human, he's actually getting it right. You know, Caitlin yeah, I mean, a woman. She's a woman. And the other thing is, what? Why is this a problem to other people? And the same can be applied to autism. You know, a lot of people get upset by autistic allowances and you know making the world a little bit easier for them and you know there's, there's certain individuals who will get angry about that and see it as the word i saw thrown around was got a word, disabled privilege someone said yeah that, oh good <laughs> lord <laughs> so, I, I always you know like i said to you earlier it's just the the craziest misnomer i've ever heard the, the preface privilege with the word disabled is just oxymoronic 
its best. Exactly. It's, it's like what? <laughs> and it's um, you know again I I talk all this down to social media issues. It's you know people with half half baked opinions and fast thumbs on their keyboards. And it's important not to get too dragged down by that because I clearly was, and you can see it in the book. And you know, a lot of podcasts I did around the time of the book, I was saying all these things that eventually came to pass, which was kind of spooky. I was like, okay, you know what? Some of these neurodiversity wars, so to speak, they're going to get to extremes. You know, the neurotypical bashing is going to get out of hand. The innocent parents are going to get attacked because of what? Because they're being perceived as the quote-unquote martyr parents and all that. And it's and it was scary and. You know, social media started to get a bit weird and dark for me a few months ago, and it made me oh, seriously ill. Okay. You know, the, the the mental health implications of that sort of thing in the call out culture and being quote unquote cancelled gave me shingles, <laughs> and I didn't wow. know you could get shingles from stress, and it was the most painful week of my life. And it's that's, kind of made me that's incredible and and terrifying. Do you do you want to speak a little more on that? Like what what kind Absolutely. of behavior were you uh, were you receiving exactly? Um, I've always had a big mouth myself, and I've 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 always been quite outspoken about dangers of the extremes. And the problem is, if you start defending parents of autistic kids who may well be autistic themselves, you're gonna open yourself up to abuse and aggression from people who despise parents who despise neurotypicals yes and the autism mommy the the mob it's the dreaded <laughs> autism know, mommy <laughs> you know i just i want to go into a bit more detail on this because obviously you can't sum up in a tweet and that was the problem you know i don't like constant aggression towards neurotypicals and parents because it does it separates us as a community further from a human race and as someone who wants integration with society rather than segregation that terrifies me. So to see accounts just blindly piling on neurotypical, you know, even even with all this going on in the world right now, the coronavirus, I saw there was a video. No, no, it was a no. We won't talk about that one because I was a nice person. Um, there was one oh. saying, you know, at times like this, you know, we're all isolated. Don't get in touch with any, you know, toxic ex boyfriends or whatever and stuff like that. And someone retweeted that to say, oh look at these neurotypicals, aren't they stupid? And it's like, hold on. One, we don't know the neurotype of that person tweeting. And two, they're just trying to protect themselves from, you know, possibly abusive ex-partners. Do, do we really need to turn this into an us versus them tweet? And the problem is it's very algorithm friendly because, you know, all of us have experienced some sort of discrimination, you know, be it's minor or quite massive from people different to us, you know, be it neurotype or anything like that. And it's... So it's understandable why people harbor that resentment, but then all these narratives and jokes at their expense tap into that resentment and it just feeds in, it builds and builds and it gets more, more and more extreme, more and more extreme. And it gets to a point where you are starting to feel like an alien, like you're not a member of the human race because they're, they're different and we will hate them. And it's, that's terrifying. It's exclusionary bigotry <laughs> at its finest. And it's, yeah. It's and, um, and I think it's really important that we understand where a lot of it's coming from, you know, with the, uh, again, the dreaded autism mommies. And I get it. A lot of them yeah. have done pretty bad things, have said ridiculous things, put up supposed cures that are dangerous. And we all know Maybe. the stories, right? And th okay, that's when I started out, I, but, I used to say attack the idea, not the individual. But yeah. nowadays I'm starting to think, in the case of, you know, the autism parents, the martyr parents, you know, the ones who ram the camera in their kid's phone or, you know, try any sort of bizarre, you know, treatment, quote unquote treatment. 
Yeah. Maybe we should just attack out an individual. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe attack <laughs> the individual because we're at the point now where the term autism parents has such a stigma attached to it that there is hardworking parents who, you know, decide to have an online presence just getting absolutely slaughtered for the crime of passing a child through their ovaries. And it's it's something I'm very uncomfortable with. And you know, it was in the book. I started off completely not liking parents and a little bit of aggression towards neurotypicals and not liking I I had a weird beef with self-diagnosed people. And as you see the book go on, I start to, you know, both learn and understand and open my mind. You know, one, why am I hating on self-diagnosed people when diagnosis is so hard to get? And statistically, most people who are self-diagnosed do actually end up getting the diagnosis because they've done the research and they understand themselves better than anyone else can. So that was a weird aggression I had. And then the parents thing, by the end of the book, you realize, oh, this all boils down to Reese had issues with his own parents and he's lashing out at the world because that makes it better for him. And that was soon, it was difficult for me to confront, you know, having my own issues with my parents. And it was easier to make a sweeping generalization and say, oh yeah, it's all parents, all parents are bad. Rather than admit yeah. that I'd just been dealt a bad hand when the reality is I should have just um, moved on rather than lash out at other people. And I noticed that another tendency is a lot of these parents tend to have uh, children whose autism manifests in a way that is it presents difficult challenges for everyone involved. And we need to be mindful that while autism for many can be you know, primarily composed of superpowers, it can also be very disabling for some people. And it's really important to understand the breadth of this uh, spectrum or I guess this cluster, depending however you want to look at it, whether it's constellation idea or the spectrum way of visualizing it. We're very different. 100%. And that's uh, even going back to the book, that's why I chose to do it in the first person as a memoir. Because if you did it as a guide or a flat out, this is what autism is. It's massively misrepresentative of everything. And two, if someone was to follow that as an actual guide, that could be incredibly dangerous. And so I love the idea of memoirs. And there's so many out there, so many on the way. Every single one of them is unique. And maybe you should probably just go out and read them all to get this perfect vision of how different we all are. And then understand that, you know, my autism isn't your autism. And that's okay. And... I don't know, this is, this is the other thing. I think we're starting to move away from the stereotype that it's just white dudes, but let's do it even more. I mean, still, we're still in a position where a lot of the major voices, you know, be it social media influencers or people doing the big talks at the charity events and stuff, they're white guys and, you know, they've had great opportunities in their lives, but it's maybe we should open up the podium a bit more to you know, autism doesn't discriminate by gender, creed, color, race, religion, anything. And, you know, going back to what I was saying, there's so many on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And, you know, you've, I think I'm on there now. <laughs> and it's important to show oh, wow. that. How did, uh, how did you come to that realization that you may be, um, would it be, what, what would you identify as? Um, I'd identify as bisexual. That's the first I've ever said that in public. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. It's just I'd, in. Exclusive folks, gossip. you hear that? But that, I think that came after the diagnosis of diagnosis was, it was a confusing and difficult time because I felt like my life before that had unraveled, you know, things that I thought I was functioning in, I wasn't. Cause I think without that diagnosis and you spend all that life thinking you're, I don't want to say normal, but yeah. Okay. Normal. You know, the, the reality of the world is the reality inside your head. 
So when you're really struggling with situation and you're not sleeping because you're worried that you've said something wrong the day before, you know, the tiniest thing or whatever, and you're getting so torn up and stressed about it. And, you know, you're riding the bus to work every day with your stomach feeling like it's about to just cave in and kill you. <laughs> I thought that was normal. I thought everyone felt that way because you justify the reality in your head as you apply it to everyone. You think, oh, everyone's like that. This is normality. This is life. And then when you realize, oh, no, this is this is the autism coming into play. This is the stresses of that and not letting letting your autistic flag fly would, you know, retrospectively be what the issue was. So upon, you know, after working out and realizing there's no going back to that, you start to, can I swear on this? Yeah, of course. I didn't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> you, know, you know, if someone knows I'm autistic, they're going to expect me to not have social skills or whatever. So fine, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell people what I think. I'm going to be less... I won't choose partners based on how the world's going to perceive that. I don't care about social norms anymore. I'll just like someone, I'll go for it. You know, I started smoking loads of weed. <laughs> yeah, I think we we can all hear that, huh? That what's going on there. <laughs> oh, no, this is a cigarette. It's, it's, it's free in the afternoon. I'm not that bad yet. <laughs> <laughs> yet. Yeah, even smoking cigarettes. It's, <clears throat> you know, why not? I wouldn't recommend the lifestyle I've suddenly adopted of not giving a damn and just being kind of super chill about everything and taking things as they come. You know, that's probably not yeah, much like people. I think it's like everything. You need a balance. You, you can't be uptight, but you, you can't be loosey-goosey about everything. You know, you need to take something yeah. seriously. 100%. You know, if you to boil it down into actual, you know, tangible advice, find your freedom. You know, be the best you you can, well, not the best you you can be, be the definitive you you can be. Don't repress that. Don't change that for anyone. You know, that was, that's the other thing, you know, you, you learn it while doing the book and putting yourself out there as a public figure. And, you know, this drive I now have to be kind of this public speaker and kind of crossing the line between TED Talks and stand-up comedy, which is what I hope to do once the live show gets back on track. No matter what you yeah. do, no matter what, yeah. you, what you tweet, you could tweet that the sky is blue and you will have one person disagree with you. There's always going to be, there's no person in this world that's unanimously liked. And, you know, I have, I have a lot of issues around my sense of self and my ego and my confidence. About three or four years ago, remember when it was really trendy to diagnose people as a narcissist? You know, uh, was, uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but in hindsight, it was, yeah, and psychopath sociopathy checklist was getting really popular. Yeah. Robert Hare's name was floating around like crazy. Suddenly, everyone was an anti-psychologist, and yep. you know, the, the environment I was in at the time, I was terrified of someone asserting those labels on me. I don't know why. Maybe it was, you know, I've. It's weird. My expressed ego is always different to my internalized ego. So there was this huge fear of being interpreted as narcissistic because the way I project it and confidences and stuff. So I started getting really. So I'd, I'd punish myself for doing anything that was in my interest, but that would then. It got so extreme, it was to the point where, you know, if I had dinner for myself and I didn't cook for other people, that was selfish and I should be punished and feel bad. And it was, I had to, I had to have a lot of therapy to kind of unwind that, but it, it's still there. It's this huge fear of, you know, people seeing me as a bad person and it's about yeah. just let that fall it, away because you could be a good person, so I'll still find reason for it to be bad. And that's, uh, it's unfortunately really common. And I find anyway, from a lot of autistic people and we have a group and a lot of us identify with that because 
you know, we're taught through harsh life experiences that something is fundamentally off about us. And so we look for other clues as to what it could be, you know, and we identify these negativities and um, we internalize I this great them. Quote the other day, it was Dr. Phil of all people. Oh, and yeah. He said, um, we compare our true selves to other people's social masks. And I, I that hit me so hard because it's so true. And, you know, I'm, we're trying to be people. They, you know, we're seeing other people's social media accounts. You know, we we worship these, you know, especially in autism, which are so drawn to the cult of personality. We see these big monoliths of people being brilliant. And the reality is what who they are on social media isn't a true reflection of themselves, nor is it for, you know, my social media isn't a true reflection of myself. I'm still quite private about a lot of things. But people see that as the definitive view. And it's how do you want to express that? And how do you maintain or should you even maintain that brand? Yeah, yeah. I would say, I mean, honestly, it's just unhealthy to keep comparing yourself to one, an idealized version of themselves. I mean, the whole point is most people aren't going to plaster their worst moments online. You know, no one's really going to look that up there. And then it's interesting because then you're obviously only seeing half the picture and people judge people based on that. And that's a scary reality as well. You know, I've, I've, I think I made a tweet once that autistic people should be given you know the environment and space to thrive quite a simple sentiment and it was met with aggression and someone's like oh we can't all be famous like you we kind of work on star wars and it's like hold on right one you compare yourself to me do you even want to draw star wars pictures for a living and two you know i'm sat at this tiny little creaky desk drawing pictures it's not exactly hollywood and yeah and the amount of work that goes into that art i don't know if people fully appreciate how many hours it takes how many messed up drawings have to be thrown out and redone for the same picture. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a person who's, you know, we're all different and our superpower to disability ratio is always different. And the mind swings and when it swings to disability, it tends to stay there a little bit longer than it does when it's in the superpower bit. So my moments of disability do outweigh my moments of perceived brilliance or being good. And, you know, I, it's hard to communicate that in a way that then still, helps you be successful and you know you can be it's it's hard to be as honest as possible through those channels while also there's also a certain responsibility to the audience and it's about finding that balance because you know yeah and so about your burnouts you know how how uh, rough do your burnouts tend to be i'm sure you've experienced few by now right i have i haven't had like a full-on curling up and crying one in a few years because I'm lucky enough to, you know, be able to work from home and have an environment where I'm in control of my stress levels. And, you know, if I want to put pressure on myself, it's on me. So I can't really, there's no external factors too often. You know, if there is a family drama or, you know, the way society's turned in the last few weeks, that can weigh down on me heavily. But it's about pre-planning. I always say it's a bit like a long jump. You know, I know I'm going to be doing something on this date so i have to emotionally and mentally prepare myself for you know my routine's going to change i'm going to have to be at this place at this time get really emotionally prepared for it then when i'm there i'm usually actually quite good i can actually you know be in the moment and kind of turn on guess mask would be the word but i always treat it as a performance and i can be social i can be engaging i can be extroverted and then i know that after the long jump i'm going to need you know a slice of orange and some water and to sit down for quite a long time so, you know, if I do something big, I need a bit of recovery time after. And it's about allowing myself that. 
because you know the routine change is the important bit and you know working from home you don't have as much a routine as you would with a nine to five job but you have to make your own so it's like oh, okay today i'm going to get up go for a walk sit at the computer for six hours get as much done if i feel i've done enough i can then go watch tv and wind down it's just building up this structure and routine and then slight changes to that will then affect it so you know the live show it was meant to happen on the friday huge emotional preparation for that really getting pumped and psyched and i knew once i, w- I was on stage i would have been okay and then afterwards you know I-, I allowed a weekend of being housebound to make up for that and that's the way my structure would have to work to survive yeah and i take it your live show yesterday was uh was it canceled or did you somehow um it was postponed the, the original plan was well the original plan was to do a big proper full-on show and it would have been wonderful and then when things started happening in the world and it became a case of okay this isn't going to happen but you know what the it's a small theater they rely on my money to keep them afloat they're going to rely on money from the bar and stuff and also i've put all my own money into making this show and the amount of money we spent on props and stuff they were worth it they're great props but you know i'm seriously financially invested in this as well as emotionally invested so what we were going to do was a small group of my friends about five of us would have gone in we would have filmed it really well we had like multi-camera setups and proper microphones and stuff but i needed at least a couple of people there to bounce off of because that's the way the show is written it needs people to laugh and boo and interact at certain places and that, that would have been okay and we would have had a nice video going up this week but then when they forced closures of any sort of venue like that they had to close down sadly it's not happening for the foreseeable future but once once we're through the eye of this storm and we can set a sensible date for when we can actually do it again properly we will do so so it's still happening and you know i there's two things in my life that i'm proud of one is the book and two is what the live show would be it's you know I, I studied really hard to see what was out there in terms of you know actual autism talks and autism based comedy and i genuinely think that what i was about to do and what i will do in the future is quite unique and you know even if it was a bit of a flop and no one liked it at least i could say i've done something unique because <laughs> that was the other thing it's like okay there's not too much direct comedy and funniness out there is there a reason for that yeah and um honestly it's okay if you mess up once i mean it doesn't mean the routine is necessarily bad it means okay well maybe i need to go back to the lab and alter a few things yeah, here a, and there bring i mean it back out. a lot of yeah, a lot of the content on there was, it's you know, it's been formatted as tweets and stuff in the past to just, you know, test for water. Because, you know, Twitter is a great soundboard for seeing if anyone's going to be offended. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's such a tricky topic, even when being serious, you know, and you have to delicately word every single thing, you know, in terms of, you know, the semantics of everything. You've got to be so delicate. And, you know, we had some blue jigsaw pieces laser cut into little stickers for the show for a prop and people got so oh, angry on Twitter, and they were trying to explain to me why that iconography is offensive or you know disliked by the community and it's like that kind of upset me a bit because it's like hold on do you think i'd really spend half my life savings to put on a show and not realize the implications of what i'm saying or the imagery i'm using you know trust me that if i'm going to use blue jigsaw pieces i'm going to take a nice big punch at the idea of blue jigsaw pieces 
So it's, yeah, it's just tr- trusting what I'm going to do and trusting in myself to do what I'm going to do. But then delicately word yeah. it in a case where it's not going to be misconstrued as offensive. You know, I don't want to spoil any jokes because it's at this point in time, it's still going ahead. But, you know, if a certain imagery I'm using, you know what, in, in the routine, I want you to get offended and you're going to boo me and you're going to swear and get really mad at me. And then 30 seconds later, I'm going to turn it around and show you just exactly what I was doing. And it's this, you know, you could do that on Twitter. You could not do that on Twitter because <laughs> people would then think yeah, you're that, That's the point of comedy, right? Is you. You need to uh, you need to see where the path leads before you outright judge it because the context yeah. is is crucial. I mean that's the in, the entirety of it. The, like any performance, the same, goes, the same goes for the book. I mean, I but the only bad review I had said that all I did was be aggressive towards autism parents. I was like, oh, okay, you've read the first few chapters and gave up. <laughs> Stick with it. And it's that's the vital thing: context and seeing the full picture before taking a punch at me. You know, I'm sure I've said and done many, you know, as I, if, if I went and read, read the book again now, you know, four or five months later, there's going to be a few things I'm not still on board with. You know, I think a lot of my views have softened, you know, I think I went pretty hard on the autistic dark web. And then nowadays I'm like, mm, they're problematic, but to then counter their aggression with aggression, that's not sensible. Yeah. In a case of just being cool and open up a dialogue with them because i think if you were to actually have a serious one-on-one chat with people you disagree with you'd actually find you do agree on most things it's just certain little points you don't agree with so i mean the the autism dark web right yeah absolutely their main upset is kind of how neurodiversity is displayed online you know the the kind of pride aspect of it all and you know all stemmed from there was a controversial article published in the guardian i say article it was like an opinion column that you could just write in saying that it's a fashion statement that, you know, people are just saying they're autistic now because it looks groovy or trendy. Groovy, I don't know why I said groovy. Trendy, it looks trendy. <laughs> groovy. And, <laughs> Austin Powers. Okay, yeah, autism's pretty groovy too, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. But, you know, okay, you could say that and you could say, oh, that is kind of offensive that people are using it as a fashion label, but then it's a case of, find me one person who is using it as a fashion label. Find me one fake autistic person. If you want yeah, to get in touch with me after listening to this and can find one, please do. But also, I've never won't. seen one. It, it just yeah. seems so. I mean, if you're looking for attention, that's some of the most negative attention you can get, not even in a fun way, but in a you're not just you're not going to be invited places as often kind of way. You know, people do unfortunately react differently when they learn about a diagnosis like autism. And uh, I've, I've certainly experienced it. You all, you you always get treated differently and it's it's weird trying to come to terms with that. I mean, you know, I've had so many professional engagements now where you kind of, especially in the media, you'll meet people, you know, producers and stuff, they don't know how to treat you and they start talking to you like a child. It's so bizarre. Oh my God. That's and the worst. I've had, uh, I've had it from an organization in this area. I'm in New England in the United States for those who uh, don't know. So I called this you know, this locale, I'm not going to give any names, but I called this local place and the person on the phone was talking to me totally fine, normal. And I mentioned that I'm on the spectrum and all of a sudden she starts changing her cadence and it's slower and everything's simpler. And like, you know, we had a pretty great conversation for 10 minutes before you knew my diagnosis. What makes you think something changed all of a sudden? That prejudgment, they just kind of assume that 
suddenly things are different. And it's, I have two attitudes towards it. I'm either going to challenge it straight away or I'm going to play up to it. And, you know, sometimes it's funny to play up to it. You know, it was a radio station. If you listen to that show, you can see me just kind of leaned back on my chair, no longer caring at all about being serious. And I'm just going to be really silly with it. And that can make for good content because, again, you're also challenging the stereotypes by being silly and showing you've got a sense of humor. But then to challenge someone, you have to word it in a delicate way that's not offensive. And it's difficult for me because I think my impulsive reaction with that sort of thing is to kind of get mad and offended. You know, I've, I've had it on like autism group sessions and stuff. They'll say one thing I don't like and then I'll sulk for the rest of the session. And then I'll come home and think about it. I'm like, oh, okay. On the whole, yeah, that's does a good that, experience. Um, I've, I've let my emotions kind of... I'm sorry. Continue. No, no, no. Go, go for it. Um, does that relate to... to the cognitive rigidity that you've experienced? In the book you wrote, there's one particular instance where uh, I think this is hilarious. On page 129, there's a picture of you dressed as Hedwig. Uh, I think it's Hedwig. <laughs> it's definitely an owl from Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you went to a Harry Potter convention, fully full body dressed as Hedwig the owl. I died laughing. I thought that was really excellent but someone commented on the facebook post telling you how childish she thought it was or he thought it was and it really haunted you for a little bit absolutely it still does and you know the whole thing is trying to be funny and then for some one person to not this is the thing this is what it all boils down to is they see me they know that i'm autistic because you know i speak about it so much on social media you know it's kind of my online brand but if i suddenly make a joke or do something a bit silly they'll think, oh, he's disabled and this is look down on it rather than laugh at it. And, you know, it's it's clearly a joke. You know, I'm going to Harry Potter Studios. You know, I know that people like to dress up as their favorite Hogwarts house or whatever on the, when they're going around the tour. I'm going to take it one better. I'm going to be an owl. So I ordered the onesie <laughs> well in advance. Little did I know that that was going to be the hottest day of the year and I lost about half my body weight in sweat. <laughs> but it was yeah, so well. funny again. You know, every, came out of it. <laughs> every, it was a hu- huge crowds of that sort of event, and everyone thought it was so funny. People taking little photos of it, and the staff absolutely loved it. They they were coming over to talk to me and stuff. Brilliant! I and love the suggestions. <laughs> people saying you should have brought letters with you and just handed them out to people. It would have been incredible. There's another photo of me. You go into the the Dursley's house, and it's the scene where all the letters are flooded through the. <laughs> the chimney in the fireplace and the whole room's full of letters as a friend of me stood in there looking really awkward like oh sorry guys funny stuff you but know then, you know there's always that one voice who says you're being really childish and it's there's two things okay maybe that's ableist because you think i'm disabled i'm not capable of being silly or funny or irreverent or you're you you're you as a human take yourself so seriously you can't handle the concept of someone dressed as an owl it's Frankly, I, I would have taken it up a notch. I would have found a way to safely jump through a window clumsily and just apologize for it. I just had a letter to deliver. I'm sorry, you know, and just that <laughs> it's just so obnoxious and ridiculous. I think that humor is incredible. It's some of my favorite style of humor. You know, I see, life is a joke in essence. I, I don't take anything too seriously. I don't think anything's off limits in terms of humor, but I think there's certain ways you can pitch a joke so it's not offensive and. Yeah, it goes back to being funny about autism. You just have to word it delicately. So, you know, if if I'm making jokes and stuff, if there, if there is to be a victim, it's always going to be me because I can take it. I'd never go and like, make a joke about a minority or a you know, a group of people because that's 
even if you're trying to be funny, that's bigotry. I always used to defend it, actually. You know, when when the neurotypical bashing first started, like, kind of coming into my line, I was like, okay, you know, if people are doing it as a joke, you know, free speech, I defend people's, you know, if that's their cup of tea, it's fine. But then I started to realize it's the humor that's actually influencing the wider social understanding. So you can make lots of jokes about neurotypicals and, you know, it starts off as funny, but then the more you think about it, where's that joke coming from? Why are you so inclined to keep making those jokes at the expense of that person? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, especially if it's not one off. If it's a trend that is speaking to something a little more uh, pertinent than just something you thought was funny. You know, there's whole Facebook pages and Twitter accounts and websites and YouTube channels set up to ha ha ha, let's laugh at neurotypicals because they've laughed at us. And I, okay, I can kind of I can kind of see the reasoning behind that. You know, you're oppressing the oppressor. And in a way, there's a kind of nobility to that. But then on the same page, guys, you are becoming what you've stood against. Maybe reel it in a little bit. Show that you're the better person. Exactly. And um, I guess to zoom in a little bit on where you are in the world, how, how does the NHS, and for those who don't know, I believe it stands for um, the National Health Services, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So how, we, how does the we, we, NHS we, we, handle autism and autism-related issues? Do you feel it's... Very inadequate, I mean, someone adequate. In broad great. strokes, it's bad. Oof. You know, there's, there's not much there. The understanding's not great. You know, even if you try and get the help, it's, you know, what help do you want? It's starting to change, luckily. You know, there's especially, you know, with children, there's so many parents campaigning for better special education, educational needs, education in the schools, getting involved with local politicians and stuff. That's the way forward. And in terms of adult services, they've just started doing them. So I, I, I was invited onto a course 14 months after my diagnosis, which, you know, it's me going in. I went in, I was ready to hate it. And that was the problem. I was ready to go in and find something to be angry at. So I really didn't like the first session. But then when I came away and took some time to calm down and think about it, I was like, okay, if I had got this a week after or a month after or whatever, after my diagnosis, this would have been amazing. So I need to embrace that and celebrate that it is starting to exist now. And Coventry, the area I'm in, it does a lot of pilot schemes. So we need to really embrace them, really celebrate them, really show how good they can be so they do get rolled across the country. So it's, I've had to watch my tongue a lot on Twitter because, you know, my instinctive response is to badmouth them, to share pictures of like a slide from a slideshow that I don't like because then the controversy gets attention to me and I sell more books. So, you know, from a selfish perspective, to completely slate these organizations would actually work in my favor. But it's, about seeing past that, seeing the wider picture, knowing that this isn't about me and that, you know. Yeah, constructive criticism is key, or else uh, people may shy away from the service altogether. Or, so, you know, I see a lot of big Twitter advocates or influencers or whatever you want to call them outright deny the existence of these services. The services do exist. Okay, they've got so little funding that they can't promote themselves very well. They've got so very little funding that they can't do as much as they want to. And then, the other case is, for me, I was so desperate for support. And then it was a case of stopping myself after getting upset that these support things weren't specifically catered to me and questioning myself, wait, what support did I actually want? What was the specific support I needed? You know, I don't need an introduction to autism class anymore because I've read all the books and, you know, I've kind of gone off and done it myself. But there's going to be so many people out there fresh off their diagnosis who would benefit immensely from those groups. And the other great thing about the groups is you're putting... 10, 20, 30 autistics in a room and they're going to interact and 
share experiences and also celebrate their differences. And there's something so positive about that as well. So it all needs celebrating and empowering and pushing forward. Because you know what? Yeah, the services are inadequate, but they're foundations and they're foundations that we need to build upon because they're sturdy foundations. Because if we just outright deny that exist, we've got no foundations, we've got absolutely nothing. And where do you even start building from there? So yeah, it's about embracing what's there and making it grow rather than seeing what's there, saying it's not good enough and then leaving it. I don't know. I just, I just, it's hard. And I, I'm trying so hard to be positive about it all. And there's, there is good ones. There's a, there's a new one that started near me called Shires. It's a completely independent company. The people running it have had decades of experience in autism and understanding it. And they're offering bespoke one-to-one support. So, you know, for £20, you go and meet them in a safe space. So for me, it's a coffee shop a few streets over. And then it's specifically catered to you. So, you know, I could go not knowing what I need in terms of support. But, you know, after half an hour of chatting, she'll start to see, you know, the patterns of certain things I'm referring to. So if I'm upset about something that happened online or I'm upset about my confidence levels, they'll tap into that and it'll start to become more bespoke and catered. That's That's really cool. Because that's a national service then, right? No, they're they're exclusively Coventry because they're an independent service, Uh, sadly. Which is a shame. But again, it's it's, it's a case of celebrating that and, you know, if I ever got a platform big enough, I'd be singing their praises from it. And then hopefully that'd inspire other people in other areas to maybe start similar organizations and stuff. Obviously, all these things are incredibly safeguarded and regulated and that, which is also important. But yeah, you know, the thing with autism is because it is such a broad term and everyone is so completely unique and individual within that, you need bespoke one-to-one support. And, you know, our healthcare systems don't really have the capacity for that right now. And it's either a case of do we campaign to completely overhaul our health services in any nation to make them fit, or you know, do we start these little grassroots things that can offer bespoke one-to-one support? That's really that's really important too, because grassroots, you know, they may be small, but that's kind of the advantage is uh, they they're not as beholden to what is supposed to work on the net. I don't think too many people feel too comfortable funding very experimental you know, types of help. Yeah. And Whereas you know, if you're smaller, you've got that flexibility. You've got the freedom to play around with ideas and things and the then, funding, of course. But then you've also got, you know, there, there'll be regulatory bodies above that, but just make sure it doesn't get too dangerous. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, one, it doesn't pose a threat to the individual because, you know, you could have someone completely unqualified going out there doing really extreme things. Oh boy. That's yeah. When, I mean, have that's, you, that's when you need heard, the intervention. It just happened uh, in the United States in our infinite wisdom. It, took us some incredible amount of years to finally ban the use of electric devices as punishments for oh, yes. uh, for neurodiverse people in, in, in my home state even. Um, well, not really my home state, but the state I reside in, Massachusetts, we have the Judge Rottenberg Educational Center that was just told by the FDA they can no longer electrocute autistics or other groups of people in their institutions for doing things they regard as wrong. I mean, things as simple as taking off your jacket when you're not supposed to would elicit a warning shock. And there's this horrible video of this poor, poor guy, 17-year-old, I believe, just getting electrocuted, I think, 27 times. Had to be restrained. And, you know, you, I mean, it's just horrible. It's horrifying. It's like, what the hell is this? It's Victorian science. Victorian you wouldn't even do that to a dog. You wouldn't uh, no. treat them like that. 
you know what? This is the thing. They're taking their jacket off because they're they're hot or uncomfortable. They're not doing it to you know fuck the system. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> what a weak form of uh, protest. <laughs> fuck zippers, man. Fuck your system. If you're you're punishing people for harmless things, and then it escalates to a point, you know, electroshock therapy on the brain, and what's that? But you know, essentially, it's just brain damage until you're sedate enough to fit in with someone else's standards, and it's never good enough. And you know what? They're, they're autistic people aren't bad people. They're not objectively good, but by and large, you know, like all people, it's a case of how they're raised and how they're treated that makes someone good or bad. And exactly. There was, there was an article about it actually in my town. You know, there was a guy building bombs in his shed, a grown man, and his mother was def- trying to get him out of jail because he's autistic and that's okay. And I have such mixed feelings about that. Okay, maybe he shouldn't be yeah. in jail. He should be in some sort of support thing. But being autistic is not an excuse for doing such things. It's an explanation, but not an excuse. And it's, I guess you can't really. The media doesn't want to perpetuate such a complicated narrative. It just wants the story of, hey, look, this guy was making bombs and Max exciting. So, you know, the media is not the best outlet for interpreting no. an autistic person. In America, we, we've had a good share of the media, you know, pointing fingers at autistic people for school shootings. I mean, and, statistically, you know, autistic people aren't even responsible for the bulk of them, you know, but. That that doesn't matter. It's just an easy target to point your finger at and say, "Look, on edge and isolated person," and you know, yes, there's probably so, a sense yeah. of comfort for people to slap a label on something. But it's you know, even then, it's the case of okay, so an autistic person has decided to commit an atrocity. Why? Let's go backwards. Let's see the environment or you know the social stigmas they face to make them feel excluded enough from society where they feel the need to punish society. And it's they're the conversation that should be being had, not look autistic person bad. That should not be the narrative. <laughs> it's it's incredible because I mean what, what NT should really understand, what everyone should understand is uh people on the spectrum are people first. So we Absolutely. vary just as much as any other group. I mean, we have tons of variation. You would never consider one neurotypical who did something atrocious as the standard by which we measure them all. It just, it would not be fair. It's, it's a ridiculous Absolutely. idea. Why are we which changing why, you know, the uh, goalpost for autistic folks? Exactly. Which is why it's unfair to then, you know, assume all neurotypicals or all parents are bad. But yeah, going back to the, you know, autistic people, Simon Baron Cohen is partially responsible for that. with zero degrees of evil book. Oh boy. <laughs> and, and his, uh, was he the one who, I believe he was the one who said that the way we view a dinner party as an autistic, and I guess this is his way of trying to empathize with the autistic experience, but he describes other people as flesh bags wearing clothes, and I have never thought of a human being in that way. I mean, that just sounds like a really bad acid trip. Funnily enough, I have, but, you know, I've probably been on really bad acid trips. <laughs> but, you know, as I, 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 I'm British though as well, so everything I do is kind of negatively charged and comes from a place of nihilism, so... <laughs> it's hard not to see the whole human race as that, but I would include autistics and stuff. Because that's the other thing, the the counter-arguments that then get presented. So, you know, if an autistic person does something bad, you'll then see an autistic blogger or whatever jump on and say, actually, no, we're all unanimously good. We can't lie. We are objectively good. And it's like, hold on. You say we can't that, lie. That's certainly bullshit. I've, I've lied so much in my life. It's the thing. There's, there's the, ox- the oxymoron that exists of 
we can't lie. Oh, we're really good at masking. What is masking? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it's actually excellent. Never actually thought about it that way. And you strip out all the nuance and try to make these objectives, you know, sweeping statements about either your own community or other communities. You know, you're tripping yourself up because there's so many variables and exceptions that it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I, I've, I've lied plenty of my time. I've been a bad person and a good person, and I wouldn't accept either label. If you were to say I was objectively a bad person, I'd disagree. If you were to say I was objectively a good person, I would disagree because I'm, I also suffer from a human condition, not just the autism condition. And there's, exactly. There's a I play. And uh, it's kind of a classic issue with any minority group that's faced a lot of... Uh, oppression and or hate in the past i mean you see that their social structures start to crumble under the weight of the oppression and so people under trauma do awful things and awful things are perpetrated and perpetuated through lineage and And it's about it's about backtracking in the narrative to find out where it went wrong you know because you know there are so many you know Statistically, suicide is the highest killer of autistic people. So that's you know that's yeah the for sure problem we we face. And if you look at the factors behind that, you know we don't feel part of society. We feel alienated. You know we we feel discriminated against. And that's you know what wh- how do we stop that? And it's about introducing a more balanced and human narrative to society. You know, be it through the media or your social medias or just being you. You know, going out there, living your normal everyday life is, you know, that's you breaking down stereotypes and myths. And it's important to embrace and celebrate that. Because I think the problem is if you then counter, if someone makes a stereotype or accusation towards autistic people, you know, such as we don't feel empathy, there's this weird compulsion to lash back and go, oh, actually, we feel too much empathy. That's our problem. And it's like, no, 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 no. Nuance. We need a bit of nuance. Different people have varying levels of empathy. People, every person is different. You know, I've been an appalling liar and terrible person in my time. Someone else might not have been. It's not exactly an argument that requires neurotype. It's going to play into it a lot, but we're all different people. So, you know, both autistic communities and, you know, your neurotypicals or your outside communities, they all need to play a hand in actively combating sweeping generalizations. Mm. And uh, on the topic of your experiences, I, I actually noted one part of the book I found um, really both interesting and a little sad. Uh, I mean, there are many parts of the book that are sad. Again, for those of you who haven't read it yet, there are. Uh, it can get pretty heavy. You know, it's it's a very real. And that's look a bit back the whole first chapter life. basically trigger warnings. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciated how you you even tell the reader very early on in the book, like, listen, this is going to get kind of dark, and if you're not ready for that, I don't suggest you read ahead. Absolutely, but, I, I I I know how hard it is to look at certain content. You know, it doesn't have to be provocative content to be provocative. And you know, I've I've blocked and muted so many Twitter accounts just because certain things that upset me that are completely not the fault of the individual, but it's about defending one's own well-being. So you know, if someone doesn't want to read the book, I'm not going to force it into their hands. Yeah, it's on page seventy-nine. You talk about your experience at one of your jobs. You had a friend who didn't like other people you were working with, and you you would be a coworker, be a decent person, talk to them, socialize with the people he didn't like, and. Mm. Uh, this person uh, sort of gave you an ultimate, I mean, not even sort of, they gave you an ultimatum. It's listen, stop talking to them. You know, it's 
this is this what these people times. are mean. Yeah. And, uh, and I saw that you said that, you know, you were the independent variable there in all these cases. And so I mean, you feel like you have responsibility, but and the way I read it is, uh, you shouldn't feel responsible to me. That guy kind of sounds like a dick. <laughs> yeah. It's been <laughs> a, like, it's weird. Like, I it I noticed it because of the book, and then I write about it in the book the, the two year cycle. It's the same thing. I'll get into a certain job, get surrounded by certain archetypes of people, and it's the same thing every time. And you know, I when I get a quote unquote best best friend sort of role in my life, it becomes kind of a submissive role for me. And you know, they kind of take this older brother stance, and they become quite controlling and manipulative of my life, and I allow it, which I shouldn't, and I probably wouldn't in the future. Become that it becomes they enjoy the power they have over me and I just let it happen until breaking point and then lash back. And, you know, in the case of that guy in the book, you know, it became this, you know, you, you can't go f- hang out with your old school friends because I'm your friend now. I thought it was the running term used was, I thought we were mates and that was, you know, the best way to emotionally spur a response or reaction from me. And I let it go on for way too long to the point where it got messed up the place because we were colleagues and, <sighs> You know, it's yeah. weird how I left that place. Um, he accused me of stealing a pair of boxer yeah, shorts. Friend, it huh? a re- it, yeah, it was a re- it was a real t- retail shop, and he accused me of like hiding some boxer shorts. So I was going to go back and steal boxer shorts in a shop where we sold like really expensive watches and perfumes and stuff. Boxer shorts and um, valuables, man. It's it's all about that. You just understood what the real value was in that shop. So those boxer yeah, that was about, I just I came in the next day and handed in my notice. I was like, no, you, like if one if someone's going to do that to me, I don't really want to be here anyway. And two, if you're going to let someone do that, you know, I've been there for two years. I'm not going to say if I was to steal, I'd steal X, Y, and Z because I could have, but that would have probably made me sound more guilty. But you know, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was just a fine fuck you. And um, I slept with his ex girlfriend, so it's cool. <laughs> Hell yeah, the the quintessential road to bad decision making. It always ends <laughs> or begins with an X. It's uh, it seems to be a very common trend. Not not just yeah. for you, but for I mean, many of us, autistic yeah, or not, it's just a kind of a human thing. <laughs> it makes sense. Go yeah. back to someone you've had past comfort with, revel in nostalgia. Not much a revenge person, but in his case, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she was. Oh boy. <laughs> I was young as well. I was very impulsive, but yeah, it's just, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to point the finger and call someone ableist or abusive because they probably don't even know they're doing it, but it's important to see the signs and know when to defend yourself. And historically I've always been quite submissive for want of a quieter life. I would often just let things happen and, you know, still goes on today. You know, I, I'm passive when I should stand my ground and I'm aggressive when I should be being passive. And it's about finding that balance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can't let people walk all over us at the same time. Um, we have to be measured even in those responses. And it's unfortunate, but uh, a lot of people will regard how the situation's going and who's right and who's wrong based on reaction less than content. Absolutely. And, you know, I, as a person, I'm my emotional reaction comes first and then the logical reaction there's a bit of a delay on that. So, <laughs> you know, I'm getting bit, a bit better at, you know, learning to step away and think about things before making moves. With practice, me right? Massively with some of the autism stuff I've been doing recently. You know, if I was to let my emotions dictate, I would have been shutting down companies left, right and center and making a mess. Whereas if you wait and let logic step in, 
and be mature about it, you can actually make a genuine difference in the community, which is something, you know, out of the book. I don't know. I've never been quite, I'm never really planned for my own future and stuff. So I've, everything that's came after all of this has been total chocolates. I mean, you know, I didn't expect to be alive two years ago. I was kind of, I was done and I was so close to, you know, that line, which is not a good thing. No one should be in that state where they feel that way. No. But, you know, kind of, you know, there was a certain motivation going in with the book that, you know what, I might as well go it all in now. I've got nothing to lose, which not in a nihilistic sense, in a, yeah, let's do this sort of way. And, you know, I historically that book will be the one that I'd be remembered for. But they're just, hey, well, you know, I'm Nietzsche's arguably most famous book came out of his uh, terrible isolation and feelings of abject depression over in some Absolutely. weird forest I mean, in Germany. To be a good artist, you don't have to bring it all from a place of pain. But when it does come from a genuine place of pain and it there's something about it, and I think that's why the book resonates with so many people. You know, not everyone's going to identify with my life and my lifestyle, for sure. Nor would I recommend them do so. And, you know, there's something kind of joyous in that because, you know, you can pick up my book, you can relate to some stuff. And then in other points, you're going to say, whoa, it's a completely different thing to me. Wow, look how different and diverse autism is. That's brilliant. And hopefully that's the message that comes from that. And then that's opened doors to work with organizations like Act for Autism to make a genuine difference. Because, you know, from my background, my stakes are heavily invested in better post-diagnosis support, better workplace environments for autistic adults. And the fact that I've been able to have a direct influence on that has meant the world to me. And But when, when does it end? This is my problem. <laughs> I don't know when enough's enough. When can I sit down and rest and say, I've done, I've done my part? And that's the other problem. You romanticize it as this martyr complex of, oh, it's all too late for me. I'm, I'm going to make a difference and then go. And it's, that's not good either. No. And on the flip side, it, it's so delicate, anything to do with the public eye, because it can just fill your head or destroy you. I mean, when your sense of worth is in the hands of a diverse group of people who don't know you all that well, it can get pretty hairy pretty quick. And I'm sure you've massively. experienced that firsthand. Oh, all the, all the time on Twitter. It's, you know, I've, I've massively stepped away from the, the discourse, they call it, you know, whether the topic of the week is. Because I got so tired by it all. As an individual, I, I like the narrative to keep going. You know, there's something new around the corner. And, you know, the problem with Twitter and stuff is, you know, one week they'll be arguing about semantics again, although we've already solved that. They'll be arguing about ABBA again, although everyone already knows. And it's, you're preaching to the choir, but you're preaching the same thing. Everyone's getting all emotionally riled up. And the second you step out of line, you'll get cancelled or leapt on. And it's terrifying. And the best way to win the game is to not play the game. <laughs> I've, I've quickly learned <laughs> Yeah, that's great advice, frankly. Um, we should all disconnect a little bit just for our own mental health, whether we're the uh, ones jumping on or the ones being jumped on. These days, I'm so tired and jaded, and I just want to see some actual tangible change. You know, I'm not here to play the game. I'm here to change the game. And if I can do that just slightly, I'll be happy. But, you know, I, I always used to scoff at, you know, the self-care sort of thing. I used to think it was kind of hippie bullshit. and you know, recently after getting seriously ill after Twitter-induced stress, that's the really important thing. Know when to step away. Know that, you know, an online community isn't massively representative of the real-life community. You know, autism Twitter is a massively different thing to, you know, being in a group of autistic people in a bit, you know, a support session or, you know, the, where we were filming for the Act for Autism stuff. You know, we spent a lot of time in a rehearsal room 
with other autists. It's just chatting, and it's so different to Twitter. The emotions and the the feelings and the ability to communicate and express different ideas without fear of being leapt on or attacked or told you're a bad person. It's so different. So it's important to, as great as Twitter is, to find your tribe and you know reach out to people, especially in times where we are so isolated and cut off as a humanity rather than just as autistic people. It's so good to have that connection. But it's also good to understand that that connection is a bit of a simulation. It's kind of like a video game. In the Matrix. 100%. I mean, I think I wrote it in the book. Charlie Brooker, famous UK guy, he did a, like a top 100 video games TV show. And number one was Twitter. And it's like, <laughs> right, it is. It's a video game. It's a great video game. And it's a video game of other people. And you're connecting with those people, usually in a positive way. But also understand that it's not the be all and end all. Getting that high score, getting that big follow account, getting all those likes on your tweet isn't yeah the most important thing and you know i used to fight for it a lot i was so desperate to be one of those autocrats on twitter and you know i'm always i always went to be on with the discourse i want to get 100 likes on all my tweets every time it becomes time, intoxicating i mean humans are wired for that social acceptance that validation that oh we're on the right side of things awesome look at all these people who love me and well and then, it's so vapid but then the second i started stepping out and going to these sessions and groups and stuff i started to realize None of that means anything. It's just noise. You know, I could I could go online and I could say what a good person I am. I could tell you, I could say things you want to hear and you go, oh, what a great guy you are. And you a good person saying the right things. It's like, okay, I could do that or I could go out into the real world and do something. And I think maybe, maybe the trick is to just do both. Be a good person outside and inside of the social media realm. But then that's tricky as well. How, you know, I've spoke about things I've done outside of the internet on the internet and i got called a white knight once which was really hurtful <laughs> it's like okay so what oh, else are doing nice things okay so am i gonna have to then go back to the way i was all these years ago when i was so scared of being called a narcissist that i had to do all these really nice things in secret you know back then i i was on so many like organ donor registers blood donations and stuff and being super secret about it giving money to charities and stuff and not telling anyone because that's the secret to doing it the second you talk about a selfless act you've done, you're suddenly selfish. And that was the mindset I was in. And it was so unhealthy for me. It literally put me in hospital. <laughs> and, you know, now it's kind of, it's starting to rear its head again. Like I'm being punished for saying nice things. And it's, nah, I can't, I can't get on board of that. You know, if you think I'm a selfish person for saying what selfless things I've done, that's on you. I, 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 can't, I can't care because it will make me so ill that it's unfathomable. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me that uh, you fixate a lot on things, and would you say that cognitive rigidity, that fixation on these things that either upset you or or feel good even, and you just want to keep replicating the experience, that uh, seems to have been pretty disabling for you in a lot of situations. And you know, I'm incredibly self-reflective as a person. Every action I do, every word I say, I'll ponder on it and let it stew and really think it. And that then extends to, you know, I'm terrified of what other people think of me. I'm terrified of what I think of me. And it's, you know, sometimes that's healthy and you can let your influence and you can let other people's influence mold you in a good way. But you can also take it to the extreme, to the point where you are trying to satisfy every single person. You can't do that. I mean, speaking in broad strokes, take, you know, accommodation for autistic people in, a, you know, we, we were trying to do it for the theatre. How do you make this as autistic friendly as possible? And then you realize because everyone has different needs, you can't satisfy every single person. So what can you do? You can't not do anything at all, but you need to make an environment comfortable enough 
where people can ask for change and people can suit it to themselves. Fluidity yeah. then, yeah, you need fluidity yeah. and um, fluidity and understanding really two crucial pieces. And people, I think, uh, need to understand that um, in order to make something great, you need to mess up a few times. Most people don't just get it right out the out the gate. It's very difficult to do. Absolutely. You know, this this is not my first rodeo. This is not my first book. It's not my first Kickstarter. So I've I've had a chance to fail. As you know, there's books out there with my name on them. You know, that you'll never find on the internet anymore because I've been like it's my like Star Wars holiday special. I've gone back and deleted all evidence because they've you know they've failed so hard and you know they've been so disastrous on you know personal and creative level. You know that I couldn't show them to people, but you can learn from those mistakes. You can. You know what's working, you know what's not working, and you can then you know mold yourself into a better person and better creator and a better career as a result of that. And it's important to then also look back and see the signs. You know, I think the book was handy in seeing you know the two-year cycle in jobs and relationships and friendships that you can start to you know start to break those trends. Otherwise, history is just doomed to repeat itself unless you intervene. Indeed. And uh, don't keep making the same mistakes to the best of your ability. And with that, I think it's a fantastic place to end with that tidbit of advice. And so, Reese, tell us where we can find you on Twitter, on social media. And for everyone, get his book, Reaffirmation, Coming to Terms with an Autism Diagnosis by Reese Finlay. Or Finlay. He, uh, he's a fancy <laughs> bastard. Reese, plug yourself. Sell yourself, sell your soul. Um, yeah, so buy the books on Amazon. That's the best place to get the paperback. Um, you can also read it on, if you've got Amazon Prime, you can read it for free on there, Kindle Unlimited. You can read it for free on an app called Comic House. It's like the Netflix of comics. Um, you can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Reesey Time. And there's a Facebook page called Reese Finley, the Autism Legend. Um, that's kind of, it used to be all my comic stuff, but now it's kind of marrying the comic stuff with the autism stuff. You know, I'm trying to put out some new web comics about autism often and blogs and we just started a podcast called two autistics talking about autism and that's a great chance to like we we're talking about today to show the, the broad individuality of it all and that's kind of keeping me sane through these hard times but yeah other than that, i just buy my book because right now that's my only source of income during tricky times so it helps immensely yes. Support Reese. He's doing stuff that's important, and his book is funny. It's funny as hell. I can tell you, I read it, and I love the style. And thank you for coming on, really. It's been an absolute honor. And everyone, peace out. See you again sometime soon. Yeah.